Well, good morning, Chapel family. What a great morning. Uh, I encourage you to take your Bibles and open to the book of Ephesians in chapter 5. Lieutenant Stephanie Greer and her fiancé were both active, uh, active duty Navy officers. They got married at the county courthouse over their lunch break one day. Coincidentally, it was the day when just hours before uh, the government had announced the ceasefire for Operation Desert Storm. The court official signed their papers, pronounced them husband and wife, and then he smiled and remarked, one war ends and another begins. <laughs> you know, unfortunately, that's how a lot of folks view marriage. It's either an ongoing conflict or, or one that's just about to start. As believers in Jesus Christ, God desires better for us. He wants for our marriages to be different, to reflect who we are, our identity as believers in Christ. People who have been chosen by God, adopted into His family, redeemed, as we just sang, by Christ's blood, forgiven of all of our sin through His lavish grace. People who are heirs with Jesus Christ, People destined for heaven and for eternal glory. He has called us to live together in unity and in partnership and in love in the church and in our marriages and homes as well. Here in Ephesians chapter 5, we have listened to a couple of other messages on marriage in the preceding verses. If you weren't here in those weeks, I encourage you to, to listen to those. They're available in CD, on the foyer, and, and also on our website. You can download them there. I think it's worthwhile information. This morning, just three verses we're going to look at here. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 to 33. And uh, as we do, I want, to, I want us to deal with a question a good question as we talk about marriage, especially in this day and time, in our culture, is this question, why marriage? In a culture where cohabiting, living together, either before or in place of marriage, is becoming the new normal. On top of that, our culture is busy trying to redefine marriage. And they ask questions like, why must marriage be between a man and a woman? Why not two men or two women? Or what may come next? What about a person and their dog? Or whatever, you know, why can't marriage be whatever we want it to be? And that's a legitimate question. Let's see what God has to say because the answer really is before us here this morning. Verse 31 Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The Apostle Paul here isn't just writing something new. He's quoting from Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. He goes all the way back to the beginning, to the very first of creation as God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them and He created man and woman. And at the end of the creation account, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, it reads this, Therefore, 
A man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. And so Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 starts the same as Paul does here with his quotation with that word, therefore, or as it's translated if you have the New International Version, it probably reads, for this reason. It's exactly what that, that Greek preposition there can, can mean. It can mean not just, you know, we, therefore we kind of dismiss sometimes, but it can mean for this reason. And when we read it that way, it raises a question. For what reason? Glad you asked. I'm going to give you three of them. The first reason is because it's God who's talking. Now that's not apparent as Paul writes this. It's not even necessarily apparent when you go back and read Genesis chapter 2 verse 24. But it's Jesus Christ who tells us this. Jesus quotes this verse also in Matthew chapter 19 verses 4 and 5. Before Jesus quotes this verse from Genesis chapter 2, He actually quotes from Genesis chapter 1. He says, Haven't you read, He replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, you see, the Creator, God, said. And then He goes to quote this verse. This is God talking. And you see, whenever God talks, we should listen. Why does marriage matter? Because God says so. As kids, we hate that when our parents say that. Why? Because I said so. But sometimes now that you're parents, you understand that's the only answer that really matters right now. Because I said so. And sometimes that's the only answer that matters in the Scripture. Why marriage? Because God said so. All right? But there's more. He does go on to say, ultimately, as, as you look at this, not only would we believe marriage because God said so, but Jesus here in Matthew 19, before He quotes this verse, He gives us another reason. He says, haven't you read that in the beginning, the Creator made them male and female? He links this verse where God institutes marriage to God's creation of man and woman as male and female. The fact that God creates us with gender is connected to the creation of marriage. God has linked the two. And Jesus links the two. That is, for this reason, because there is male and female, there is design. The Creator designed us as men and women. Why? Should marriage be between a man and a woman? Because that is how we are wired. It was how we were created. Marriage exists between men and women because God designed us for marriage as men and women and He designed marriage for us. It's the plan. The United States did not invent marriage. Neither did Western civilization. Nor did even the ancient Jews. God created marriage at creation. And so it shouldn't surprise us that we see it everywhere through cultures throughout history. doesn't surprise me that the New World Encyclopedia says this, Marriage is a universal institution which has formed the foundation of the family throughout history. 
The essential necessity of marriage has long been recognized economically, legally, spiritually, socially, and as the primary institution for raising children. It shouldn't surprise us because nobody invented it on a human level. It was wired into us at creation. And so while you can find, I'm sure, an exception here or there, it has been the universal norm. It is the way we are made. The design. There's a third reason that why marriage, we find it now in this verse. All of that was just in the, the first, therefore. <laughs> the verse goes on and, well, actually, I'm going to back up because it still has the word Therefore. We still are dealing with the word therefore and therefore always sends us back for this reason. You go back just a few verses there in Genesis and in verse 18, God says this, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable or a helper that is fit for him. See, marriage is designed for our good. God, as He created man. He said it's not good for man to be alone, so I'm going to create a helper that is designed for him, a companion who is suitable for him. A Literally, the word that is there in the Hebrew is the word a complement. And complement doesn't mean, as we talked about a week or two ago, it doesn't mean, oh, hi, you look very nice. Oh, thank you. It's not that kind of a complement. It's the completer, that which completes. It's the geometric use of the word complement. They, they are like two puzzle pieces that are matched for one another. So again, it shouldn't surprise us that someone says, it actually surprises me because this is a sociology professor at the University of Chicago who wrote in her book, The Case for Marriage, married people are overall emotionally, psychologically, and physically healthier than their divorced, bereaved, or single counterpart. Marriage is good for us. You know, every new car comes with an owner's manual. You find it in the glove box in case you've never looked for yours. I remember the first time I went through the General Motors plant. This is a side. I shouldn't do that. Uh, First time I go through the plant and I, I get all the way to the end and there's this guy standing there who's, you know, the finished car rolls down the assembly line and his whole job is opening the car door, reaching over, grabbing the plastic bag with the owner's manual, sticking in the glove box, close it, close the door. It's like, wow. (laughs) Who gets that job? Somebody did. What's it there for? It, It gives information about your car. It tells you how to use it, how to care for it. And some people need that. For example, that, in, that owner's manual will tell you that indeed you have a car. You can check the VIN number. You can look at the pictures. And sure enough, what I have here is a car. But you can say, you know, I don't feel like having a car. So instead, what I feel like is having a boat. And so you can say, my car is a boat. And I got good news for you. If you do that, you can use your car for a boat once for a very short trip. Then it becomes a submarine. (laughs) God is our designer. He is our manufacturer. And this is the owner's manual. 
we ignore it foolishly and to our peril. The prime reason our culture is abandoning and redefining marriage is not because they have come up with a better alternative. They are doing so because they reject God as Creator and so they reject what He says about marriage and about sexuality. Even when, as Romans 1 says, as you could read the progression there, it says even when the truth is obvious. And I will say that the farther that our society moves away from God's design for marriage, the deeper it will sink and will suffer the consequences of that folly. But ultimately, the problem really isn't in their view or their definition of marriage. Ultimately, the problem is the rejection of God. And we will not get anywhere by trying to scream and beat into people a different view of marriage because that's not the problem. The problem is they need a relationship with the Creator God. As we move on in this passage, he says that's the why of marriage. But this, we move now past that word therefore and we come to what marriage is about, the process of marriage. Three things are in this verse. Going back to Genesis chapter 2, in that verse, there are three things that set up the, they are the elements, the essentials, as it were, of marriage. First of all, he says there is leaving, there is leaving father and mother. It says a man leaves his father and mother. It doesn't say, say a boy. It doesn't say child. The emphasis, I think, the first thing is that there's maturity here. Marriage is for mature folks. It is the leaving of father and mother because you are now mature and responsible enough to handle the establishing of a new relationship, of a, of a new home. It is assuming that you are not expecting your wife to be your mommy. You're not expecting your husband to be your daddy. That you can go off and live irresponsibly and you know life is just to play while other people serve me. You've grown. You've matured. You realize that's not the case. It's for grown-ups. Leaving is also not primarily about geography. It's not about getting away from mom and dad as far as possible. So some of you may think, well, that's not a bad idea. It is a matter primarily of allegiance. See, what it's saying is that your prime devotion, your prime accountability, your prime responsibility at marriage shifts from your parents to your spouse. That when you get married, that the marriage relationship trumps all other human relationships. I'm not saying that we hate our parents, that we, that we have no responsibility to them, that we sever ties with them. That's not the point of leaving father and mother. It is simply saying that this new relationship becomes the primary one. My primary accountability, my primary responsibility, my primary devotion is to my wife, not to my parents. So you don't end up with that whole thing where mom and dad are, are trying to run your relationship and you're letting them. It's, no, you are devoted, you know, your wife comes first, your husband comes first. Secondly, he says 
a man leaves his father and mother and will hold fast to his wife. The, the word there, hold fast, can also be translated as it is in the King James Version, be joined to, or in the New International it says, be united to. The word literally is translated being glued to, being bonded, being welded to. It's, it's this connection that also, as you go on and, and take it a little farther, Jesus was emphasizing, therefore, because of this bonding, it's designed to be a permanent relationship. Jesus said, so they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Don't break apart what God has glued together. He goes on, not only is it a permanent relationship, but this this being joined together, this holding fast, also implies and has to do with a relationship of commitment. It's an act of the will. It is a, a determined choice to be faithful, to stick together, to stick with one another, no matter what. A, a determination of commitment. It's also, lastly, a bond of blessing. This commitment it provides the fertile soil that is necessary in a marriage relationship for that marriage to grow and to flourish. See, it, it's in that commitment that there is the security, the comfort that, you know, when I get old or fat or sick or disabled, you're not going to trade me in for a new model. There's security there. That same commitment is also what is needed and, and provides for children the security and the love that they need to thrive and flourish. And mom and dad who are committed to one another and stick with one another won't abandon me either. It's one of the things that kids struggle with the most when moms and dads divorce as they feel if they left each other they will leave me. For some kids, they never break past that. Divorce is a, is a devastating thing. And God says, I hate divorce exactly because of the damage it does. You know, last night I took these two pieces of wood and I took some Elmer's wood glue and I squirted the wood glue between them and I took clamps and I put it together. Then the day before I came to church, I took off the clamps and I tried to break them apart and I had to get a chisel, and I put it right there on the joint, and I hit it. And you know what happens when you, when you try to do that? The glue doesn't break. The pieces of wood do. And there's pieces of wood from this on that one, and there's pieces of wood on this one from that one. And that's what happens, you see, when you break apart a marriage. That's why God says, I hate divorce, because there's no such thing as a clean divorce. There is always damage. There's hurt. To those who, to the, to the partners in the relationship and to the kids, God intends for it to be a permanent relationship, one that is glued together. And so He says, husbands, wives, hold fast. You are glued together and commit to stay glued together for your own good and for the good of your family and for everyone. It's a blessing. Sometimes it's a blessing that takes work. 
He goes on. The process for marriage is leave and hold fast. And the third part, and he says the two become one flesh. It's been said that marriage is that place where a man and a woman become as one. The trouble starts when they try to decide which one. <laughs> one flesh is, is a profound thing. Like this whole verse, it is just loaded with stuff. In a great economy of words, as God just, as He spoke, He just used a few words to say an awful lot. The marriage relationship is designed to be one flesh. First of all, we understand that that one flesh involves a physical union, the sexual union. One flesh, we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you go and look there, as the Apostle Paul explains, that, that one flesh has to do with, and there he's talking about why, why sexual immorality is a bad thing and, and joining to a harlot is a bad thing, to a prostitute. And he says because there is, that's what one flesh involves, a sexual relationship. The Bible celebrates sexual relations within marriage. God has designed for sex to be something that is pleasurable for a couple to enjoy intimately and uniquely and exclusively as a couple. And so the Apostle Paul went on in 1 Corinthians 7 and he explains there and informs us how it is both our privilege and also our responsibility as marital partners to meet one another's needs in order to fulfill one another and also to protect one another from temptations to immorality. It's a physical relationship. More than that, but it includes that, but it's also more than that. Several other things in this. One flesh is not only a physical union, it's also a process, a continuing process. The, the, the one flesh relationship is something that continues as two lives continue to be merged. This profound fusion of two hearts and two, two minds and two souls and two bodies. It is a growing thing that happens throughout your lifetimes until the two become so intertwined that it's hard to know where one ends and one begins. If you're married, you understand that, that, that you know each other better today, hopefully, than you did a year ago and hopefully than you did 10 years ago and 40 years ago. It's interesting to notice in a good marriage that as time goes by, I've noticed that, that couples tend to start acting alike, tend to start thinking alike. You tend to start finishing one another's sentences because you know what they're going to say. <laughs> Sometimes you even start seeing that the couples start looking alike. It's a profound thing. The most important word is not yours or mine anymore, but it is ours. It's a process over the years. More than that, one flesh also is a product. The product of this union is children. It is literally the joining together, the mingling together of the genetic material of the two parents into one flesh. And as children, in this short verse, there is that children are here because what you have, it says, a man will leave his father and mother. When God said that back in Genesis chapter 2, children weren't even there yet. It was just Adam and Eve. They were minutes old. And God said, for this reason, 
A man leaves his father and mother. God set up this continuing pattern. Adam and Eve, you're going to have children. When you do, there's going to come a time when they are going to raise up and, and they will step out and they will have, they will marry and have children of their own. It doesn't mean that every marriage must or will have children, but it's saying that marriage is that place that God has designed where children are conceived where they are born, where they are nurtured, where they are loved, where they're raised, and finally where they're launched by their mother and father to go off and start the process again. Fourthly and lastly, this one flesh relationship has one more thing. It involves a principle for us to embrace. You see, if this is true... And it is. It's remarkable. It may be the most life-changing and most valuable concept that you will ever learn and embrace about marriage. See, think about this. What he says is, before marriage you are two people, Bob and Sally. You come, you commit to one another in marriage, you begin this marriage relationship, and the two become one. You commit to one another. You are joined sexually. You you begin the process of, of joining together. God Himself has entered into the process as we saw back in Matthew 19 where, where Jesus adds on to that where He says that God does the joining. He says, whoever God has joined together. So it's both and, us and God and all of And we're joined together. And get this, you are now no longer two, but one flesh. Now, now think about that. If my wife is me and I am her, then what that means is nothing is just about me anymore. If you lose your job, so does your wife, men. It affects her. If she gets cancer. It affects you. Right? Guys, if you get a raise, why does that affect you? Absolutely. For good or bad, what happens to the one happens to the other. There, there is no, no just separating ourselves from that. Well, that doesn't concern me. It's all about her. It's all about him. No, it's us. It's all about us. Together. So if that's true, and it is, then it makes sense what Paul says a few verses before that we read the week before last where it says, verse 28, in that same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Get this, he who loves his wife loves himself. The point is that what you do, men, to your wives, ladies, what you do to your husbands, you do to you. If we say, if we do good things to them, it comes back to us as good. If we say, or if we do bad things to them, it comes back to us as bad. And so, from that principle, what we recognize is that, hey, the best thing that I can do as a husband, the best thing that I can do as a wife, is to shower good things on my spouse. Right? That alone may be worth the price of admission this morning. may change your life. And be careful because anything you do that hurts them comes back to you. Anything to discourage, to demean, to belittle, it comes back. 
Don't go there. All right. We move on. Verse 32. Finally, we make it to the second verse in our three verses. And it gets quicker, shorter. Verse 32. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Why is marriage a big deal? Because marriage is bigger than you or I have ever imagined. Marriage is about a beautiful picture. Marriage is significant because God has designed marriage to be a living, breathing picture of the relationship between God and us, between Christ and the church. The love story of our human marriage is designed to reflect the wonder of the greatest love story of all, Jesus and the church. It is to be a tangible representation of the love story that is in the pages of Scripture from the beginning to the end. You see, it's the story of a loving God, His covenant faithful love for a flawed and a faithless bride whom He rescues, whom He redeems, whom He restores by His own sacrifice. Finally, with whom He is united at the end of the age. You see, it starts in the beginning of of, with Genesis, God creates us and we fall into sin, we rebel against Him. And the story of Scripture is God's rescuing and, re- and redeeming of us and His love for us. And you get to the end of the book of Revelation where at the end of it, it describes the, the marriage supper of the Lamb when the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the Bridegroom, is united with His Bride who is the church. And that is the story of Scripture and it's intended to be depicted in a little, albeit dim way, <laughs> through our marriages. What it's saying is that the the best and the most loving marriage between a husband and a wife is a little reflection, a little picture of the unimaginable joy that awaits you and me when we, the church, are united with Jesus in heaven. See, most of you wonder, some some of you have even probably thought, you know, is heaven really going to be that great? I mean, you know, I, I think heaven is okay, and, and I, you know, I don't want to go to hell, but, you know, um, this place is pretty nice, and, and we worry about, you know, heaven might be kind of a letdown. You know, sit on clouds, play a harp, you know. He said, hey, folks, imagine marriage at its best. That's a, just a tiny picture of what heaven is. Oh. Huh. See, did you just light up just a second? Oh, I never thought of that before. Marriage at its very best. And that's just a, a little sliver of a picture of what God has in store for you. One last reminder. The apostle, is, he's ending his discussion of marriage here in verse 33. And because it's such a big deal, he what he does is he just goes back and he just kind of recaps what he told us, the instructions we saw back uh, a couple of weeks ago where he just said, 
there's just one thing. He, he kept it simple, and I like that. We talked about that. Just one instruction for husbands. Just one instruction for wives. And so he, he goes over it again. He says, verse 33, However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Keeps it simple. Guys, above everything else, what you need to remember about marriage, love your wives like you love yourself. Guys, I realize, talk to some of you, I realize your wives are flawed. Perhaps you're disappointed. Perhaps you're frustrated. Perhaps even some of you think, I deserve better. Talk to some folks. And so then perhaps instead of loving your wife like you love yourself, you hold back. First of all, I have to say this. Guys, I snuck a peek into your account as your pastor. I have secret limited access. I can do that. Not your bank account. That thing where you said, I deserve better. I I looked at your account. It's really here. (laughs) You don't. You know, when I read the Bible, I discover what you really deserve. It's really not good as I expected for you, but the Bible says you deserve hell. So do I. The only reason that you will not go there is because God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. The only reason you won't get what you deserve is because God loves you. And God has been gracious to you. And God is giving to you what you do not deserve. So if you trust in Christ instead of hell, all of those things we talked about before, you are adopted into His family. You are forgiven, rescued, redeemed, restored. You you have a future in heaven. You're going to have glory. You have a great, you are an inheritance, a co-heir with Jesus Christ. And on and on. So much stuff. And so his point is, my point, instead of giving your wife whatever it is you think she deserves, if it's not your great love, then love her anyway. Because that's what God has done for you. Take the love that God has given to you and love your wife like that. That's what he said earlier in the passage. He says, love your wife like Christ loved the church. Give yourself up for her. Give yourself to her. Shower your affection upon her. Love her above yourself. And then he says to wives, again, just one thing, respect your husband. Actually, it's interesting. He changed it from before because we saw last time we saw that he said, wives, submit to your husbands. Here he helps us. He changes, uses a different word and maybe helps get even a better understanding of part of what he means in this. Respect your husband. It's really kind of odd when you look at the word in in the Greek because the word that's translated here, respect, means reverence. It's actually the exact same, well, not the same word. It's the, uh, The word here is a verb. You go back into verse 21 and it uses the same word as a noun. And it says there, it says, talking to all of us as a church, and he says, submitting to one another out of, and here's the word, reverence for Christ. 
The word respect and the word reverence are the same. The word reverence, to revere. Another way to translate that word is like this. Be in awe. I told you it gets weird. Wives, be in awe of your husbands. And I said, it's weird because I know your husbands. And they're not really all worthy. I get that. So let me help you put some shoe leather on it. Perhaps, just perhaps, your husband isn't everything you want him to be. Just suppose. He may fail. He may fall short. He might have male pattern stupidity. Probably does all of those things. But instead of nagging or complaining or belittling or stewing (laughs) or withholding affection or whatever, the Word of God here is calling for you to admire Him. To lift Him up. To be a cheerleader and encourager. To be His biggest fan. No, he doesn't deserve it. But you see, it goes back again to how God treats us. And he goes back again. I think in these two cases, he really is telling us husbands how to meet your wife's need at their deepest level and wives here how to meet your husband's need at his deepest level. He needs an encourager, a supporter, a cheerleader. Paul says, I think in those two lines, If you forget everything else, here's what you need to be doing when you go home today. I want to end very quickly with one more question. That is this. How do we live in a culture that is abandoning and redefining marriage? What do we do in a culture like this? Three quick suggestions. They're scriptural. The first is the scripture tells us we are to train our children, train them up in the way they should go. We need to train our kids about godly marriage, what God says in his word about marriage. The culture is indoctrinating them every day through media, music, movies, the Internet, through their friends, the peers. Just the whole culture is telling them that, you know, all of the things that are contrary to what God says, we need to teach them. We need to. It it takes intentional effort to inform our children about the wonderful plan that God has designed for our sexuality and for our marriage. It takes intentionality to channel them in the direction of what God says. Secondly, not only are we to train our children, but we need to live faithfully honor marriage. If you're single, that means that you need to live a sexually pure life. Save sexual relations for marriage. If you are here this morning single or married, you're involved in an immoral sexual relationship, it means end it. If you're here this morning and you're married, you need to build, you need to invest in your marriage to build a good one. Good marriages require continual attention and continual effort If you're struggling, get help. If your marriage is good, keep going, keep working to improve and make it even better. I firmly believe the best 
and the most effective impact that you and I can have on our children and on our culture is not teaching and preaching about marriage. It's not that that's bad. That's just not the most effective thing. The most effective thing is we need to demonstrate the love of Christ in our own faithful and devoted marriage. Because our kids learn a lot better by what we do than even what we say. And our neighbors and our friends and our, and our co-workers see a lot more of us and they learn a lot more by what we do than what we say. And the, to me, the great tragedy, the greatest tragedy is not that our culture is abandoning marriage the way God says it should be. That is a tragedy because there are consequences to that. But the greatest tragedy is that there are people who name the name of Christ who say I'm a believer in Jesus Christ and yet live immoral lives. Or they are satisfied to let their marriage fall apart or to end their marriage because they want to be fulfilled. They want something better. They think, you know, I can do better with a better, different model. And they are faithless in their marriage. And we wonder why the culture looks at us and laughs. Lastly, Say this, love extravagantly. Inside our marriage, inside our home, but I mean more than that. See, the reality is that adulterers, the sexually immoral, the homosexuals, transgendered, whatever, those folks are not the enemy. Shame on some Christians who act like they are. Because what the Scripture tells me is that these folks are caught in the deception of the evil one. They're caught in the deception of sin. And that sadly, they will suffer the consequences of sin in their own life and in, the, and in their relationships. Our response to them is not to be those who are condemning, but rather those who love them to Christ. We need to do that the way that Jesus did it. We need to be faithful and bold when we have opportunity to speak the truth. And we need to do as He did. Look at his, the example of His conversation with the woman at the well. John chapter 4. With the woman who was caught in adultery. Those accounts, and you can look at others, when Jesus deals with folks, He never, he never compromises the truth. He doesn't avoid the truth. He speaks it clearly, and yet He does it compellingly. He does it with gentleness. He does it with compassion. He does it with grace. He does it with love. And so should we. Because that is the way we will impact our culture. Not by beating them over the head with signs, but by introducing them to the grace and love of our Lord Jesus. And the fact that He has a better plan for their life than Satan does. Let's pray. Father God, tremendous stuff here. How we need it. We need it because, yes, our culture is in a mess. And Lord, we pray that that it would change. But it's not going to change by just changing laws or trying to push an agenda. It's going to change when people come to put their faith and trust in Jesus. When their hearts are changed, they'll desire to change. 
Father, the reality is we need some change in our own lives. The reality is many of us are struggling. Many of us are failing in so many of these things. The truth is that to to even carry out these instructions that are here this morning, they are beyond us. It is beyond us to love someone else more than ourselves. It is not natural for us to put another person first. How we need Your transforming grace in our hearts to enable us and to help us to live within our marriages the way You have called us to do. So God, I pray for the men here that You would that You would enable us to be godly husbands who love our wives. To enable the women here to be godly wives. That the love that we have would be so strong between us. That the grace we give one another would be so great. The gentleness and the tenderness would all be so wonderful. That it becomes a reflection truly of Your great love for us. That that would speak volumes to our children, to the next generation, and to our neighbors and friends and folks who don't know Jesus. And that in it all and through it all, that You would be honored and glorified. It's in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.